0: We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of his glory to you. Hey, church, good morning. Church, that is a beautiful sound. It's loud, but we're, we're being together. This is a gift, we get to be in person for this. It's wonderful. I'm Eric. I'm one of the elders on staff that um, I get to work through God's Word with us tomorrow, uh, this morning. Vince, our usual teaching pastor, he's back next week. We're here, we're here to worship, aren't we? And to see God reveal more of himself to us. He's going to do that through this text this morning. He's probably going to do it in a way that's going to be pretty uncomfortable. Has anybody read ahead? Read Joshua 7? Yeah. Might get a little uncomfortable this morning, but God is going to reveal himself to us. Oh, there's Moses. We're going to get to Moses here in a second. <laughs> May not have looked exactly like that, but there's, there's Moses. Um, I'm convinced that myself that we need to be made uncomfortable once in a while, especially as God shows us more of who he is. Especially, especially if the God that you came here to worship this morning is pretty tame and pretty undemanding. He gives a lot, but he requires a little. Perhaps that's the God that you tend toward, or, or maybe the God that you tend toward is, is a God who is pretty soft and he's easy to manage. He's kind of like this cosmic Santa Claus. You know what I mean? Like, Santa, Santa gives us good things, he wants us to live a good life, and all he requires in return is that we tell him what we want. Or, or maybe your God's main question of you has become, what can he do for you? Our text this morning is going to be helpful, especially if your God's become a little more than a glorified customer service representative. Our text this morning is going to smash that and show us more of a clear picture of who God actually is. So if any of those things are your tendencies and how you tend to view God, I'm glad you're here. By God's grace, we're going to see a different view of God. Our text this morning is going to show us an outworking of God's holiness. We've sung about it this morning already. An outworking of God's holiness is a fundamental element of who God is. It's an aspect of his glory. This is what we want to see more of. It might make us squirm a little bit. might even cause some offense. But without this glorious truth about God that our text this morning is going to hammer home, God would not be God. He'd be much lesser. His glory would be diminished. He'd not be worthy of our worship. He certainly would not be the God of the Bible. So my friends, by God's grace, we have the privilege to take a hard look at God's wrath upon sin this morning. We're going to see how it works out in some pretty severe ways. And I don't mean just God's wrath upon sin working out on pagan nations, like we saw in Jericho a couple weeks ago. Rather, we are going to see the outworking of God's wrath towards sin experienced even by His own people, Israel. So, I invite you in let's allow the text to shape our view of this glorious God. Might make us uncomfortable, might even shock us, but it's going to usher us in to be to see God face to face in this mysterious and wonderful divine truths of God's holiness expressed in wrath upon sin. So, if you have your Bible open up to Joshua chapter seven, or click there on your device, or swipe whatever that whatever you got to do. If you don't have a Bible, we've got a table full of Bibles in the back. There's more in the library. If you don't own a Bible, please take it home. It's our gift to you. We just ask that you would read it. So Joshua chapter 7, as you turn there, let me get us caught up on the big story so far. So big picture of the Bible, what is God doing? He's revealing himself to people, isn't he? And God chose to take a specific people group, Israel, in which to do that, to reveal more of himself to Israel and also all the nations around them. And so God chooses Moses. He takes Israel, his chosen people, out of Egypt and leads them into the wilderness. And when they're in the wilderness, God gives them the law. Moses, right? The Ten Commandments right above him gives them the law. What's the point of the law? To show Israel how to be different. How to live differently. How to more, better, more, better, that's not a word, or two words. They are two words. They don't... I should read my notes more. Um, it's to show the people to be different, to be more like who their God is, right? God's holy. Here's the law. They had to be taught how to be more holy and what they would be without the law. So God gives them the law. They are to point to God's utter differentness. From all the other so-called gods around them, this God is a whole lot different. So Israel's, whole, Israel's holiness, even if it's woefully incomplete, is a point to God's holiness. God is at, here's the big picture, God is at work revealing himself through Israel and through giving the law. This main objective of God is super important for us to remember because he sticks to it. He did it through Moses as he led him through the wilderness and brought him to the cusp of the promised land, and he's continuing to stick through it now that Israel has actually entered the promised land through the leadership of Joshua, We've seen already through our study of Joshua, the first six chapters, that God is still intent on calling them to be different, to be holy. Chapter 1, what does God tell Joshua? He wants Joshua to meditate on the law day and night. This very thing has called them to be different. And then we see right before they enter the promised land, God calls calls them to consecrate themselves. This idea of separating themselves to be holy before the God. And then right after they get into the promised land, God... Calls Israel for all the men to be circumcised, this physical sign of being set apart to God, different than all the others around them. Israel is to be holy like their God. So far, it's working out okay for Israel, isn't it, here in the book of Joshua? God's keeping his promise to be with them. God's keeping his promise that no other nation should be able to stand before them. In fact, the text tells us multiple times that the hearts of their enemies have melted. Their courage has fled due to this display of God's power on behalf of this holy people of Israel. This was true of Jericho. We read about this two weeks ago. Two kids. We've got some kids in here. I need your help. God gives some specific commands what the people's job is for the taking of Jericho. Who remembers what it was? What are the people supposed to do? Just shout it out. Hey, this is my boy, by the way. Yeah, go ahead. Keep going. <laughs> That's right. (laughs) Nice job, Elias. The people's job was to march around the city. That's a pretty strange battle plan, isn't it? God does all the hard work here. But God also has some very specific instructions about what they are to do with all the contents of the city, all the people, all the animals, all the things. And these instructions are a little bit less feel-good, aren't they? They're hard. These are the instructions that God gave God said they were to set apart all of those things, except for Rahab and her family. All of it was to be set apart from Israel and to be devoted to destruction. Nothing was to be left alive, and nothing was to be kept for themselves. All of this was to be devoted to God and commanded by God as His own, to be destroyed. Israel was to set apart, was to be set apart from the rest of the nations. So, too, these things were to be set apart from Israel. Do you see the theme here, this holiness theme? This, too, is a picture of holiness. So, God gives Israel Jericho, and chapter six ends on a high note. This is the last verse. So, the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. That's a high point. End of chapter six. Now comes chapter seven. Not all is well. The story is about to take a turn. Something hidden is festering among the people. A failure to perfectly obey God is about to wreak havoc. The God who just gave them Jericho is also a God who will not tolerate sin. The people are about to experience firsthand the reality of the holiness of God. Let's read it. Joshua chapter 7. We're going to take it in chunks. Let's read verses 1 through 9 to start. Joshua 7, 1 through 9. And as we read, ask yourself this question, where do we see God's holiness displayed here? Verses 1 through 9. I'm actually starting in the last verse of chapter 6. So chapter 6, verse 27. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-haven, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up from there, from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. And Joshua tore his clothes and fell the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And he put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? To give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us. Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies... For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? What about God's holiness do we see here? He wrath upon sin, don't we? Verse one explains it, explains it all, that God's anger is kindled due to Achan's sin. Achan did exactly what in chapter 6, verse 18, warned against. Here it is on the screen. But this is God speaking to people of Israel. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted for destruction. This is before they went into Jericho. Lest, when you have devoted them and take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Rather than leaving the items devoted to God as God's, Achan took some of the devoted items. He got a nice cloak, he got some gold, he got some silver, took them for himself. Achan did explicitly what God forbade Israel to do. So think about this. Israel's job in taking of Jericho was pretty easy overall, wasn't it? God did all the hard work. But the people's job, think about this, was incredibly important also. Maybe even harder in some ways, at least from a human perspective. They were to keep themselves separate from the things that God said were his, the devoted items. In other words, the people of Israel were to be holy and set apart. This proved way too difficult for Achan. Achan wanted both victory over Jericho and the things that he was not supposed to have. So Achan takes both, both what God gives and what God forbids. What a picture of humanity, isn't it? Think back to the fall. Think back to Adam and Eve. They had the entire Garden of Eden. And God says, You can have it all except for this one tree. And what, what does Adam and Eve do? Like, Well, we want that too. They take what was forbidden. My friends, this is us. We should see ourselves in this text. Our sinful hearts are never satisfied. We want more, don't we? We seem to especially want those things that God says we can't have. Like children, we desire to push the boundaries. We desire to push the boundaries rather than desire to be holy. We see ourselves in Achan doing what Achan did, and it is sin. It's breaking faith with God and violating his commands. It's the polar opposite of being holy. So we, like Achan and the people of Israel, we need to pay attention here now to what God is going to show them about himself. How does God react? Verse 1 words of our text, his anger burned. Why? Because he hates sin. He has only wrath for it. And this wrath dominates our chapter this morning. God's wrath upon sin. I want us us to see three things about it first. Notice who this wrath burns against here in chapter one. Who is it? Yeah, the people of Israel. Israel. Wasn't it Achan who committed the sin? Like, look at the very beginning. It even says that Israel was the one who broke faith with God. Well, let's push this a little bit further. Look in verses 2 through 5. In the meantime, Joshua, he has no idea that Achan has done this. As far as, as, far as he knows, everything has gone according to plan. Israel's been faithful. God gave them Jericho, so God's going to continue to give them more and more cities, just like he said he would back in chapter 1, verse 5. This is what God told Joshua. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. So Joshua, he just continues with the battle strategies. He sends up men to spy out I, and they send a small army to gain what should be an easy victory. But the results are utterly confounding to Joshua, because they are the exact opposite of what Israel had just experienced at Jericho. Rather than continued victory, now they suffer sound defeat. Rather than Israel being protected by God, 36 men lose their lives. Rather than the people of Jericho having the melted hearts and no courage, now it's Israel. Their hearts are melted and their courage flees. Rather than confidence to conquer the promised land, now Israel's in danger of being conquered. A reversal is happening in Israel, and Joshua has no idea why. And so he's understandably distraught. Get what this means. Joshua doesn't know this yet. But the sin of one man, Achan, has kindled God's anger, and now the entire nation of Israel is suffering as a result. God's wrath upon sin has a corporate dimension. The many are suffering for the sin of the one. This is the first point. God's wrath upon sin is wide, the effects at times extending beyond the individual. We don't like that. Isn't this great against all we feel is fair and is just? Why, why should God's wrath upon sin be felt by those who did not commit the sin? Now, I'm not going to pretend that I understand everything about this dynamic, but we do see it in other places. We see it in the fall, Right? that God's wrath poured out upon the sin of Adam and Eve, that we're suffering for that in a way, aren't we? We're born into sin. In the state that we're born into, we can choose nothing other than sin. We are born into a world that's racked by sin. Thank you, Adam and Eve. Do you see? In a sense, all of humanity was in Adam and Eve. All of humanity was represented by them. The many, us, were identified by the two. Scholars have coined a term for this. They call it corporate solidarity. Try to describe this dynamic. Specific to Achan, God's wrath on his sin didn't only affect him. The effects of God's wrath upon his sin extended to the whole community, and God held Achan and all of Israel accountable. Yikes! Our Western sense of fairness objects, doesn't it? But the point of the text here is to impress upon us the absolute holiness of God. How terrible is his wrath upon sin and its effects upon the community of Israel. Effects that in verse 6 cause Joshua and the elders to lay face down before God. And eventually Joshua summons the courage to cry out with all his pain and all his confusion, cries out to God, and he ends his crying out by saying this. He appeals to to the very overarching main objective that God has overall. Verse 9, And what will you do for your great name? What will you do, God, if we're annihilated? Or in other words, if we're destroyed, the very ones that all the nations are watching as your special representatives, how will that reflect on your reputation? God's quick to answer. He lets Joshua in on what's really happening. He shows him the position that Israel is really in. This is going to bring us to our second point about God's wrath. And let me tell you, it's absolutely terrifying. Let's read verses 10 through 12. The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So God lets Joshua in on the reason for the suffering that the community is experiencing. And notice here, God again says Israel, doesn't he? he doesn't point out Achan yet. The text describes the sin in successfully sharper images, this, from sin in general to violating the, the, the covenant, which may be hearkening back to Deuteronomy 20, where God tells them to wipe out all the pagan nations. And then it moves on. and says he's, they've taken things that were to be destroyed, to stealing, to lying, and the sharpest image to finally hiding them for themselves. If Achan thought his sin was a secret, God just used six successfully sharper verbs to display exactly what he did. And the community is suffering under God's wrath as a result. But why? Why is this sin such a big deal? I want you to notice two gigantic and tragic reversals the sin is having upon Israel. First, middle of of verse 12, they are suffering because they have become devoted for destruction. Whereas Israel, remember, Israel was to be different from all the pagan nations in order to represent God. Israel's sin has made them in some ways indistinguishable from the pagan nations. Pagan Jericho and all its contents, except for Rahab's family, were the devoted things for destruction, but now, Israel herself has become devoted to destruction. In essence, essence, Israel is now acting like a pagan nation. God hasn't changed. He isn't somehow less holy or less set apart. But Israel is no longer representing him. And so God's unchanging holiness now directs his wrath upon Israel. The warning back in chapter 6, verse 18, is coming true. Remember in chapter 6 where it says that if they take him, that they will, they'll bring trouble upon themselves and they'll be and they'll experience uh, destruction. This is what is happening here. So the first thing, they're starting to act like a pagan nation. Now they are devoted to destruction. Here's the second, the very next sentence. Unless Israel destroys the devoted things that are hidden among themselves, listen to this, God will no longer be with them. That is the ultimate gut punch. Israel is absolutely nothing without God's presence. They are inherently better than any other nation. The only distinguishing mark on them that sets them apart is the presence of the one true holy God. This is proved already in our text by what's happening. Without God's presence, their army fails. Their hearts melt, they're turned into water. They are threatened with annihilation. Israel is painfully ordinary without the presence of God. They're painfully common and profane, secular, the very things they're not to be. Why would God leave Israel? Because his holiness demands it. God cannot be in relationship with sin. God's wrath upon sin is ultimately seen in God's absence from the sinful. My friends, there's nothing more terrifying than that. This is the second point. I'm going to put it up this time. There we go. God's wrath upon sin is terrifying, removing his presence from the sinful. My friends, this should hit us. Outside of God, you and I, we're nothing special. (laughs) We aren't somehow better than everybody else that entice God to want us to be on his team. In fact, we aren't even neutral without God. We're worse than neutral. Our sin makes us worse than neutral. Outside of God's intervention, Our sin makes us objects of God's wrath and ultimately destined to be forever separated from him. Terrifyingly, God's wrath upon sin ultimately means God's absence from the sinful. For Joshua, God's absence would mean the end of the line for Israel. There's no more conquering the promised land. The story's done. In fact, Israel is probably gonna be done and annihilated. but please listen. Out of God's grace, look at what he did. He alerted the entire community to the sin that was hidden, even if painfully. In doing that, this is what God really did. He gave Joshua and the entire community a gift in revealing the sin and his wrath upon it. Because if he didn't, the result would have been even more terrifying. Israel would no longer have the presence of the one true God. Friends, we have got to hear this. Please take this to heart. If a friend or a family member or a coworker, or the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin, that is a gift you've just been given. That's God's grace to you. Even if they don't say it in the best way, <laughs> that is still God's grace to you. All sin, even the sin that you're hiding because you like it too much, Even the sin that you think doesn't affect anybody else. All sin only leads to death and destruction. So the most unloving thing somebody could possibly do if they see a blind spot in your life that's sinful is not tell you. This is a grace that we can receive from God to hear from other people the sin that's hidden in our own hearts that we might not even see. Prevents that sin from festering prevents that sin from hurting and continues shaping your heart away from a holy God. I've been convicted of this. I've shared this with some of you. I have a couple of men outside this church that I share everything with. All I'm thinking, all I'm feeling, like all the stuff that I'm embarrassed to share. And it's beautiful because none of the relationships in here are affected by that, and they can ask me some really, really good questions. It's, It's a beautiful thing. But here's the thing. They're only getting my filter, aren't they? They're only getting my perspective. They don't see me day-to-day and how I work or how I'm at home and the blind spots that I have. That is troubling to me. If this truly is a grace that somebody can tell me about my blind spots, I have a couple men that I give the loudest voice in my life, and they, they may not see those things. So the conviction for me, the challenge for me, is to not be so defensive so quick when somebody brings something up, but actually invite this feedback back because it is a grace from God to me. It was God's grace to Joshua and all of Israel. And it's grace that God goes on to instruct Joshua exactly in how to deal with it, to avoid God leaving them. We are now about to see the depth of God's wrath upon sin, and this might be shocking. Let's pick the story back up. We're going to read the rest of this chapter, starting in verse 13. We're going to read through verse 26. This is God still speaking to Joshua. Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes and the tribe that the Lord takes shall by lot, takes by lot shall come near by clans and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near by man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. He brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and his daughters, and his oxen, and sheep, and donkeys, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. That's heavy, isn't it? And that's exactly what we should be feeling right now, the part of the point of this text. Let's walk through it. What were those instructions that God gave Joshua to do? Joshua was to, to involve the entire community. First, they they're to consecrate themselves, set themselves apart. Again, this theme of holiness we're seeing here. And then under God's sovereign direction, they were to whittle down to exactly who it was who committed the sin. Although the entire community is suffering under God's wrath, now the individual will be held personally responsible. Indeed, the individual and all he has is going to experience the full wrath of God upon sin. The corporate reversals now become individual reversals. Just as the devoted things in Jericho were to be destroyed, so now by sinning and taking those devoted things for himself... The individual and all his belongings have become the devoted things and are to be separated from Israel. The one who was supposed to be different and holy has become indistinguishable from the common and the profane. So the community fully obeys God's instructions. But Achan, he remains silent through the process. Even as the net gets closer and closer in on him, he still remains silent. He only breaks his silence once God says and reveals that this is the man. Essentially, rather than repentance, I think we should see Aiken's reply more as that of admittance. Yes, Aiken says it's true. This is what I have done, and then he then gives a summary of the things that he did. In that summary, did anything seem really, really familiar? Like maybe another really famous sin in the Old Testament. Notice what Achan did. He saw the forbidden things, he coveted them, he took it, and then he hid them. These are the exact same four verbs used to describe the original sin of Adam and Eve back in Genesis 3, verses 6 through 8. Eve saw the forbidden fruit, she desired it, she took it, and then they hid My friends, again, in our face, here is the nature of frail humanity playing out again and again. It's like the fall all over again. We're just on rerun. We see ourselves here, don't we? Fallen human nature hasn't changed. We know exactly what it is to sin in this way. It might not be a cloak from Shinar. Maybe it is. probably isn't a cloak from Shinar. It's something else shiny, though. Something else that's promising to give us pleasure. Our sin, my friends, runs deep. So does God's wrath upon it, vividly pictured here in the fate of Achan and all that belonged to him. The warning again, back in chapter 6, verse 18, is now fully realized. Achan's sin did indeed bring destruction and trouble upon Israel and upon all his possessions. Anybody uncomfortable yet? (laughs) My friends, if we're squirming in our seats, that's part of the point. This is a picture of God's wrath upon sin, and this is our third point. God's wrath upon sin is deep, ultimately resulting in death. There is, there is no more making this more palatable. There's no rubbing off the sharp edges. The minute we attempt to make God a little less wrathful towards sin is the minute we're starting to make up a false God. This is the God that we worship, and this is what his relationship to sin is like. It's not just that of annoyance. God isn't just annoyed by sin. He doesn't just dislike it. Sin isn't just not his preference. But rather, God has a deep, deep wrath for it. God's anger toward Israel ceases only after Israel fully separates themselves from the devoted things, including what Achan himself had become. Now, for Israel... In addition to the pile of stones, reminding them of God's faithfulness when they crossed the Jordan River, remember that God held the river up, they walked across on dry land, they did, they, they pulled stones, 12 out, as a remembrance of God's faithfulness. Now there's a second pile of stones for Israel. The second pile reminding them of God's wrath upon sin. This God isn't a customer service representative type of God, is he? And the sin you and I commit is deserving. God's wrath just like Achan because the God we worship today is exactly the same God that we're reading about. God's wrath upon sin ultimately means his absence from the sinful resulting in death. That's a problem for us. (laughs) God is holy and we're not. Due to our sin, we deserve no better than the inhabitants of Jerusalem, no better than Achan for eternity. For Israel's sin, God gave them a sacrificial system in the Old Testament to atone for it. The blood of an animal had to be shed over and over and over and over again. And that system was never perfect. Even when Israel did adhere to that system, which they didn't do perfectly, they still sinned over and over again. So more and more blood had to be shed over and over again. And we see throughout the Old Testament, God's wrath still came down upon Israel in all kinds of ways, all kinds of judgment we see upon Israel. But here's the question for us. How could God's wide, terrifying, and deep wrath be forever satisfied upon God's people? Christians, you know the answer, don't you? Yes, <laughs> only by Jesus. If, if you're a Christian, if you trust Jesus to save you, I want you to listen to this. If you trust Jesus to save you from sin and to a relationship with God, I'm about to say a whole lot of truth that's real and true for you this morning. And think about in the context of what we just read. God sent Jesus, his own son, fully God, fully man, to live the perfect life you never could. Israel never could. Achan never could. And to take the punishment for your sin upon himself. He stood in your place. Only sinless Jesus, the infinitely righteous one, could bear the enormity of your sin and satisfy the wide, terrifying, deep wrath of God upon it. Jesus died the sinner's death that you deserved. You should be under that pile of stones. And then rose again from the dead to give you what you don't deserve. Listen to this. Jesus took God's wrath from you and gave you God's favor instead. Jesus died your death and gave you life instead. In the sin of Achan, we saw that many suffered. But in the suffering of Jesus, many are saved. So we're going to cry foul and unfair. Think about what we get a benefit from, from the sacrifice of the one. You see, your God is not only a holy God, he's also gracious and merciful. He's holy and gracious and merciful. One doesn't negate the other. And if you trust Jesus, we get to celebrate God's holiness and his grace and his mercy that he has shown you. Hear this. Because of Jesus, God no longer has wrath for you and your sin. He doesn't view you like Achan. He has incredibly wide and wonderful and deep love for you. Because of Jesus, you're anything but ordinary and common. You are a saint. You're a child of God. This, my friends, is the ultimate glorious reversal. This is the undoing of the fall that we've seen weave all the way through chapter 7. Death is turned to life. Weak are made strong. Wrath is turned to favor. Distance from God is turned to intimacy with God. A desire for sin is turned into a desire for greater and greater degrees of holiness And separation from God has turned into enjoyment of God, the Holy One, forever. Do you see how precious the gospel is for us? If you're a Christian, here's your response. I think we pray that God would show us more how he views sin. All the further down we see that depth, all the greater we see God's grace in our lives. And then also for the desire to live more accordingly. That's the work of the Spirit in our lives. Here's the second response, I think. I think we adore our good God. This should be raising our affections for who God is and what He has done on our behalf, and we didn't deserve it. If you don't know Jesus, if you're not a believer, I think this is your response. I would love for this to be your response. We should keep asking questions. We should consider the things that we read about this morning. I'd love to hear your story. Know that we are regularly praying that God would save you, that he would draw you to himself. He'd save you from sin and save you to a relationship with our good God forever. That is the joy made possible for us by the work of Jesus. No other way. And this is a work that we celebrate every week because it is so profound. We celebrate this in communion every week. The gospel, my goodness. We saw the death and the depression, and the uncomfortability, and the squirminess of all of that, and now we get to celebrate, like, the peak, the gospel, what Jesus has done. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you that you have preserved these words for us over thousands of years so we can see more of who you are. It helps to correct the images that we have of you at times to... Um, Keep a more accurate view of you, less as a cosmic Santa Claus and more of the one true, holy, loving, gracious, merciful God of the universe who always was and always is. I thank you for that. God, I pray that you would, by the work of your Spirit, show us more of how you view sin. Would you give us the grace to remember your wrath upon it and then to remember the incredible sacrifice of your Son to prevent that wrath from being poured out on us. I thank you for that. Would it grow our affection for you, grow our love for you? We need your help with that. We, we can't even just force that on our own. We need your help with even that. To ask that you would do that. And if there are people here who don't yet trust you, I pray you draw them to yourself. God, would you by your grace? They can't do it on their own either. Would you open their eyes? Would they see their sin for what it is? With a desire to be in relationship with you? I pray that you'd be at work making their hearts new. I pray. God, you're a good God. We thank you for this. We pray these things in Jesus' name.